Uh, we're starting a new sermon series tonight, uh, talking about Paul's letter to uh, the Philippian church. Uh, and I'm really excited about this, uh, about uh, our opportunity to study this book. Uh, I was going to go in a different direction, and for whatever reason, the Holy Spirit just kept driving me back to Philippians. So uh, I'm really thankful for that. Uh, it's my mom's favorite book of the Bible, and so I'm excited to study it and preach it. Uh, and I'm not going to be, uh, you know, cute or clever or anything like that in terms of what I'm going to say the book is about. It's very clear. Christ is our joy. <laughs> it, you've probably heard this many times uh, said about the book of Philippians, and it's because it's true. Uh, it's a tri- the tried and true message of this book is very much Christ our joy and so I hope that's what we can draw out of all these sermons uh, however many we end up preaching from this book (laughs) is finding Christ to be our joy and uh, regardless of the circumstances that we are put in Um, it's not just my mom's favorite book that is Philippians Uh, it's also a really revered book of the Bible in terms of just a favorite of of many's uh, of many churchgoers uh, in all of the history of the church. And I think it's easy to see why that's the case. Uh, one of the, I think the main reasons that comes to mind is just that this letter is very different uh, from Paul's other letters. If you just examine it sort of just in a, in, a, in a block, so to speak, only to say that this letter is not very doctrinal. It has a doctrinal section, perhaps you could say, in Philippians chapter 2. But it's not overly emphasizing doctrine, and neither is it emphasizing discipline either. He's not, uh, there's no glaring problem that he is addressing. There's nothing super, uh, there's nothing that demands his very forceful language. Not like you would find in Galatians. (laughs) Not like you would find in the Corinthians either. (laughs) Uh, Or not even any of the other letters. It's not like Romans where he's basically uh, giving them a systematic theology in terms of here's all of the apostles doctrine. Here's what we hold. And he's giving them everything. He's not correcting something like some of the other letters. This is a very caring letter. And that's what I think you'll notice, especially in this first chapter, but also all the way through, is Paul is caring for this church in a way that's, that's not very much like an apostle. In fact, it's more like a friend. It's more like one who is shoulder to shoulder with these church members, we could say. This letter reveals Paul's tender, loving care. Uh, he cares for this church immensely, and this is this letter is is more like the outpouring of pastoral love. If if Corinthians is the outpouring of pastoral discipline, which I think it is, this one is the opposite of that. In terms, this is pastoral love for this church that has been uh, radically saved by God, but also remarkably sustained by God through the course of a long history of ministry. H.A. Uh, Ironside comments that this epistle. Is a very practical one. It has to do with our state rather than our standing. And with responsibility rather than privilege. And with communion rather than union. And indeed I think that's very much true. That this letter is a very practical one. And the overarching theme is Christ is our joy. And throughout he, this is what Paul exalts. This joyful union we can have in Jesus and because of Jesus. Which, by the way, is the only sort of point of contention that Paul addresses. Which you might know, of course, from chapter 4. Where he addresses those two women who are having an argument. <laughs> and, but what's so interesting about that fact is, if you go to chapter 4 and read those verses, he does it in a very loving way. 
He doesn't even do it like he would do it to the church in Corinth, uh, at Corinth. That here he's, he's handling it not as like a disciplinarian. He's almost like a friend. Just almost, hey, come on, work it out. Uh, get your heads and minds together. Find your unity back in Jesus. He's coming alongside them as a friend. Um, and he's showing and expressing the love of Christ for them because he knows how much he has been loved by Christ. And, and one of the most interesting ways that I think the way we can notice that is just how he addresses this church. Notice verses 1 and 2 again. As Paul is writing, he says, Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi with the bishops and deacons, Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. This is, of course, uh, a very prototypical greeting that Paul would include with all these letters. He's including grace and peace. He's, he's covering all the bases and all those sorts of things. But uh, notice what he calls himself. Paul and Timotheus, Timothy, the servants of Jesus Christ. Notice what's absent here. Any mention of the idea that he is an apostle. Any idea that he is one who is coming and giving them corrective language. Giving them something that they need to hold on to as though he is one in authority. Because he's not really coming to them as one in authority. He's coming to them as one, again, encouragement from a friend, from a brother. Servant here is literally slave or attendant, as the one who has been purchased by someone else for a particular service. Which is so fascinating that this is how Paul sees himself. Paul sees himself as one who has been purchased by Jesus for the express purpose of furthering the gospel. That's why he's here. He doesn't come at them. In any other way, because he knows that this church has done so much through its long-standing history for them. And he, he comes alongside them here to encourage them in this way. But this is Paul's heart. I've been purchased by Jesus Christ for the express purpose of furthering the gospel. Which he would also say to the Galatians in that famous verse. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And that, that's not just something Paul said. It's what Paul lived. It's what Paul uh, very much embodied in a very real way. And, and such also too have the Philippians embodied this. Notice verse 3. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all making request, request with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. They've been so supportive of them, of him in his, in his work and the way that he has uh, been off ministering and planting churches. But I think what's interesting is if you read these words and you try to imagine what's in Paul's mind. As he says, every time I think of you and remember you, I'm praying for you. And every time I pray for you, I'm thankful and grateful for you. There's just this language of love. And of course, we know what Paul is thinking about. Because we, have, we, can, we know the story of this church. If you go to Acts chapter 16, which is where I want to spend the bulk of our time here tonight. As we're introducing this letter, I think it's helpful to... Perhaps imagine what is in Paul's mind. And I think imagining what is in Paul's mind is not very difficult if we go to Acts chapter 16. Because this is, this is where we get the story of the church at Philippi, so to speak. 
Acts chapter 16 marks the beginning of Paul's second missionary journey. He and Barnabas at the end of chapter 15 have had their falling out over whether or not to bring John Mark with them. Ultimately uh, resulting in a very sharp contention, it says to us, uh, over John Mark. And so Barnabas goes his separate way with John Mark. And then Paul ends up choosing Silas to go on this second missionary journey with him. An interesting, fascinating scene in church history, which deserves its own study perhaps. But uh, Paul and Silas, they end up going on this, this, this journey where they eventually run into Timothy. Uh, that's in the first couple verses of chapter 16. Uh, then came he, uh, in verse 1, he, that is Paul and Silas, to Derbe and Lystra. And behold, a certain disciple was there named Timotheus, the son of a certain woman, which was a Jewess and believed, but his father was a Greek, which was well reported of by the brethren that were at Lystra and Iconium. Him would Paul have to go forth with him and took and circumcised him because of the Jews, which were in those quarters. For they knew all that his father was a Greek. And as they went through the cities, they delivered them the decrees for to keep that were ordained of the apostles and elders which were at Jerusalem. And so were the churches established in the faith and increased in number daily. So Paul and Silas here, they they grab Timothy and they form this team. They end up preaching through all these locations. They're traveling and they're preaching the quote apostles doctrine. All of these great and grand things about the resurrection, about the lordship of Christ. And they have a mind, it tells us in verse 6, to go and preach the word in Asia. Now when they, verse 6, had gone throughout Phrygia and the region of Galatia and and were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia. Forbidden. Interesting way that Dr. Luke here translates or words that phrase. But they continue though ministering in what is modern day Turkey. Notice verse 7. After they were come to Mysia they essayed to go into Bithynia but the spirit suffered them not. Again their plans are disrupted. And they passing by Mysia came to Troas. And here they are. They're ministering there. They're turned away by the Holy Spirit again from their plans. And this is where we are, uh, where Paul is greeted with that amazing Macedonian call. Look at verse 9. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. And there stood a man of Macedonia and prayed him saying, come over into Macedonia and help us. And after he had seen the vision, immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord has, had called us for to preach the gospel unto them. This vision that Paul sees is of a man praying, help us, come and help us, come and preach to us, teach us, we need your guidance. Obviously, it's there, put there by the Holy Spirit. And he responds to this call by immediately endeavoring to go there. Go into Macedonia. And he, because he is so sure of this direction. But what we're going to find out and what perhaps you already know that we're going to see is that this call be, turns into something that's totally not what Paul was expecting. <laughs> because landing in Macedonia, they, they make a beeline for Philippi. Which, of course, um, well, just notice uh, verse 11. Therefore, loosing them from Troas, so they depart from Troas, we came with a straight course to Samothrica, and the next day to Neapolis, and from thence to Philippi, which is the chief city of that part of Macedonia, and a colony. And we were in that city abiding certain days. 
This is, if you want to take a missiology class, studying missions, this is a great place to start. Only because Paul is very clearly giving you his sort of, his, his operating motive, which is to find the central hub and there begin preaching the gospel. There begin doing his work. This is where he's going. He's going to the central hub of Philippi, knowing he can have a great and further reach there. Paul is been described as a very assertive, perhaps the most assertive missionary who has ever lived. <laughs> and I think that's definitely true. He's a, he, we could say this word in a positive sense. He's obsessed with the gospel. He's obsessed with evangelizing the lost. And his focus is squarely on advancing this good news. And this is why he pinpoints Philippi to begin this work. Because Philippi, you see, was a sprawling metropolis, a bustling city that was inundated with heavy Roman influence. They were a huge metropolis, and some have even alluded, some historians have alluded that Philippi was almost like a mini Rome. This is how influential it is. It was situated along that famous trade route, the Ignatian Way. A heavily traveled route which connected Rome to all of their southeastern colonies, <clears throat> excuse me, of which Philippi was chief among them. They were a very important city. And here, Paul, uh, you can see what, you can see this coming uh, to fruition in Paul's mind. He knows that he's going here, he targets Philippi. That's where I want to begin my work. The, the biggest city in this area, that's where I want to go. And here, He hears of this assembly of people who are given to prayer. This is his, he he goes to Philippi and he doesn't really find perhaps a synagogue. But what he finds is a group of people essentially having a prayer meeting. Notice verse 13. And on the Sabbath, we went out of the city by a riverside where prayer was wont to be made. This is where prayer is happening. But instead of finding a church, what does he find? (laughs) And we sat down and spake unto the women which resorted thither. (laughs) Instead of finding a church, instead of finding a man, he finds a group of women reading and praying with the scriptures. I think our modern minds don't react the same way that I think Dr. Luke intended for us to react. Only because this is... Uh, This is an incredible uh, juxtaposition between what Paul's vision was and between what he ends up finding. The vision was of a man saying, come and help us. And what does he find? He finds a group of women praying over the scriptures. And of course, if you know anything about the first century, uh, women were not highly regarded. And in fact, you can read actually a rabbinic teaching from the, that was propagated by the rabbis in this day and age. And they, were, they said that the words of the Torah should be burned rather than entrusted to women. <laughs> Which is an incredibly terrible way to teach. <laughs> but what is even more incredible that this is the world that Paul inhabited. And yet what does he do? He begins teaching them. He begins teaching this group and he says, this is where I'm going to do my work. And on the Sabbath, we went out of the city and by a riverside where prayer was wont to be made. And we sat down and spake unto the women which resorted thither, spake nothing other than the apostles' doctrine. Nothing other than what they had already been preaching in all those other regions. This is what they're speaking unto them. 
Because for Paul, the work of the gospel wasn't contingent on gender. (laughs) It wasn't contingent on any of those other things. As he would later later write to the Galatians, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. So Dr. Luke wants to draw this juxtaposition between what perhaps they expected to find and what they ended up finding and what ended up being sort of the, quote, raw material for this church at Philippi. He begins preaching and teaching there. What an amazing scene. Paul says, this gospel is good news for all, regardless of your class, regardless of your station in society, regardless of who you are. This is where we can begin the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, this, through this preaching and teaching ministry, as it says in verse 14, a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, which worshipped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened, that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. And when she was baptized in her household, she besought us, saying, If ye have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and abide there. And she constrained us. So we have this conversion of this very powerful businesswoman named Lydia. Basically a CEO of a fashion company. You could think about it that way in that sort of terminology. This is how powerful she is. This is a, a very a woman with a lot of sway. With a lot of resources. With a, a lot of influence. And she is opened, as it says there, oh, uh, where's that verse? And the Lord opened, whose heart the Lord opened, verse 14. Paul is doing a mighty work through very unexpected individuals. <laughs> but if that weren't odd enough, Luke continues by giving us the scene in verse 16. Because we're told about a certain girl who was possessed with a spirit of divination. Look at verse 16. And it came to pass... As we went to prayer, a certain damsel possessed with a spirit of divination met us, which brought her masters much gain by soothsaying. Essentially, this little girl has been turned into a slave because it's been noted that she has a demonic spirit which gives her the ability to tell people's fortunes. So that now these guys, these, these guys are profiting off her. They're exploiting her torment by saying, tell people's fortune so we can make a buck. And for days and weeks, perhaps, Paul and his team would pass by the way in which this girl was and she would cry out to them. Notice verse 17, the same followed Paul and us and cried saying, these men are the servants of the most high God would show unto us the way of salvation. And this she did many days. But eventually Paul gets rid of the spirit. Notice, but Paul being grieved, turned and said to the spirit, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out the same hour. Paul, with a word, commands the spirit and she is freed. She is loosed from this demonic possession. But of course, what Luke wants us to see is just the heart of people's unbelief. Because in so doing, Paul ruined the business of these fortune tellers. (laughs) As if that mattered. To them it did. And when her masters, verse 19, saw that the hope of their gains was gone, they caught Paul and Silas and drew them into the marketplace unto the rulers. 
They can't stand for this. You've ruined our business. Now we can't make any more money. Now we can't have any way, as it says there, to have any more gains. And they stir up this mob and they incite violence, actually, on Paul and his team. Notice verse 20. And brought them to the magistrates, saying, These men, being Jews, do exceedingly trouble our city. And teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe, being Romans. And the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates rent off their clothes and commanded to beat them. Notice the the horrific effects of disbelief in what the gospel does. A girl has just been freed from demonic possession. And what is being focused on? How terrible are these Jewish preachers? Because <laughs> they've ruined our businesses. They've ruined the way that we can subsist. A girl is saved, but they're concerned about their gains, <laughs> about their profits. And they're charged in probably another sham trial and thrown into prison. Verse 23, and when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely. Who, having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. They're thrown into a prison awaiting further trial. And here's where we get that beautiful scene. Where Paul and Silas in that wretched, horrible, dark, dank, damp prison. He and Silas are singing and praying. Verse 25. And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God. And the prisoners heard them. This scene is a scene of joy. (laughs) It's a scene of Christ being their joy. You have to catch what's going on. An unexpected call is given to Paul and his team, Paul and Silas, that they're going to find this man and they're going to start a work in Macedonia. And instead of finding that, they find a group of women. So then they begin preaching the gospel. And then instead of having that work flourish, they call out a demon from a poor slave girl. And yet they are then taken from that moment and thrown into prison. Not exactly how you would think a a church plant would go. (laughs) Not exactly sort of the first couple months of evangelizing the lost should proceed if you're wanting to start a flourishing church. And yet, what does Paul and Silas testify? Christ is our joy. Because he's not our happiness. Because our happiness depends on what happens. But Christ is our joy. He's our deep-seated sense of settledness. Knowing that everything is at peace. We can be joyful regardless of the circumstances. You can see this lived out just in their lives. He's not saying anything. But even Paul's life is testifying far above and beyond anything that Paul has ever written. Perhaps in this one little scene. That all of his, perhaps, plans were totally turned on their heads. And yet, even still, he's finding joy in where he is. Got to tell you, I would not be singing. Got to tell you, I would be having a very hard time being happy. <laughs> I would be not what Paul was doing. <laughs> 
He's evidencing something so much uh, more deep. uh, This deep sense of uh, union to Jesus. Again, it's that joyful union we can have in our Redeemer. What an awesome testimony by Paul and Silas. And then suddenly, verse 26, suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bands were loosed. All the doors of the cells of the prison halls opened free and wide. And the keeper of the prison, the constable, He sees this and he has a mind to kill himself. Notice verse 27. And the keeper of the prison, awaking out of his sleep and seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had fled. All of their, all of this prison break would fall utterly on his shoulders. He was a dead man anyways in his mind. I'm a dead man already right where I'm standing. It makes no difference. And yet, this is when Paul speaks up. Look at verse 20. I love this. Paul cried with a loud voice saying, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. A moment of pure grace, where the prisoners evangelize their prison keeper. (laughs) The one who has put them in bonds is being preached about and told the good news of Jesus, the way of salvation. But I love the fact that he says, we are all here. I'm just surmising, this is total conjecture. I don't know if there were others in this jail other than Paul and Silas. Maybe there were. But it's a curious thing to note, the fact that all the prison doors were open. And he says, we all are here. Paul doesn't say, we both are here. He says, we all. Which, just reading this how I'm reading it, makes me believe that there were others in that jail cell. And if they are all staying there, I have to also surmise that Paul was a very vocal uh, prisoner. Perhaps even evangelizing the prisoners that were in the cells next to him. Again, that's total conjecture, but I think it's there. I don't think it's totally far-fetched. Here again, Paul is evidencing something That is far truer than anything perhaps he ever writ. Which is just the fact that he found Christ to be his joy. No matter what the circumstance was. And here he preaches to this jailkeeper. Notice verse 29. Then he called for a light and sprang in and came trembling. And fell down before Paul and Silas. And brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And then they said, Believe On the Lord Jesus Christ. And thou shalt be saved in thy house. And they spake unto him the the word of the Lord. And to all that were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night. And washed their stripes. And was baptized. He and all his straightway. And when when he had brought them into his house. He set meat before them and rejoiced. Believing in God with all his house. Here. These events, (laughs) preaching to this jailer, leading he and his family to salvation. What an amazing scene. 
Showing us that Christ is our joy no matter what. This is the beginnings of the church at Philippi. This very chapter. And if you go back then to Philippians chapter 1. This I think is what we have to keep in mind when Paul says. I thank God upon every remembrance of you. They say a picture is worth a thousand words. But sometimes words are worth a thousand other words. (laughs) Because when he says remember, he's remembering all of those moments. That moment when he crossed over into Macedonia and found something totally not what he was expecting. When he crossed over into Macedonia and began preaching and teaching, was thrown into prison after doing and obeying the Lord's will. Totally something not expected. Yet he found Christ to be his joy. It is roughly... 10 to 15 years since those moments. As Paul is here writing this letter in roughly 72 AD. And so uh, roughly 10 to 15 years previous is when those events were uh, said to take place. And notice verse 15 there, or excuse me, verse 5. Their fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now has not ceased, (laughs) is what we could say. They've unceasingly aligned themselves with Paul in the gospel. Such is why Paul is so thankful for them. He's thankful for them because he, I think he knows. He knows of the incredible amount of grace that happened in their lives. And he's thankful that this work is ongoing as we're going to get to in the weeks to come in verse 6 where he he says that this work is going to be performed in you until the day of Jesus Christ. His gratefulness stems from how miraculous the forming of that church was. Just think about it. The Philippian church began with a converted businesswoman and a girl who was formerly a demon-possessed slave and an ex-Roman jailkeeper. Basically, the first set of people that began the Philippian church, which are not exactly, quote, the usual suspects you would find in a church plant. (laughs) And yet, or even perhaps I should say, I don't even know if Paul anticipated to find those types of people when he got that call, the Macedonian vision. But here, here in this church, this church at Philippi, we see this power and beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which Paul rejoiced in. It's this gospel that says, as one pastor said, that the Spirit works in very strange ways to utterly utterly redeem the unlikeliest and most diverse people. (laughs) This is what he's showing us through this church at Philippi. Bringing us some really far-fetched sinners and uniting them to Jesus and thereby making them family. And here Paul is coming alongside his family and reminding them of how to find and why they can find Christ to be their everlasting joy. Which is a long way of introducing this letter only to say that this church at Philippi represents more than just a congregation for Paul. 
They were dearly beloved friends. In fact, if you read throughout this letter, that phrase, dearly beloved or beloved, will appear constantly. He was eager to serve them, eager to serve alongside them, as he will say later on. It's a letter that reminds this church how they can find their fullest and truest joy in Jesus. For me, I need that same letter. (laughs) Me, I need the same thing. The same word needs to reach out and grab my soul. Because there's so many days, and perhaps you can relate, where Jesus isn't my joy. Something else has taken his place. And something else has... uh, Tempted me to say that this situation is not joyful at all. Yet all through it all, we can, as Paul says, and it's not trite as as it might sound, rejoice in the Lord all the way. And again, I say rejoice. It's not just a cute phrase to put on a coffee mug. It was Paul's daily living. He rejoiced in this Lord who pulled him out of the depths of sin and hell. And here is his message. His message is his life. That Jesus is my joy regardless of what circumstance you find me in. And here he's going to remind this church. And may we too be reminded in the weeks to come that Jesus is our joy no matter what life throws our way. Let us pray.